Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. With the 2020 election only eight days away, anxiety is running high. And the reason for that is that the stakes really couldn't be higher for our country. Last week, I read a great piece in the Washington Post entitled, Americans Worry About 2020 Being Another 2000, But the Real Worry Is Another 1876. And the piece was written by a professor at Penn State University, Rachel Sheldon and Eric Alexander. And I found that the piece really gave some great insight to what we're looking at in the days that follow Election Day. And I thought it was important to to draw the historical comparisons. And I'm really, really thrilled to have Professor Sheldon with me today to talk about the election of 1876 and the eerie similarities between that election and the election coming up next week. Professor Sheldon is an associate professor at Penn State University and the director of the George and Ann Richards Civil War Era Center. Her work centers on the long U.S. Civil War era with a focus on politics, culture, slavery, and law. She is the author of Washington Brotherhood, Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War, which received honorable mention for the Wiley Silver Prize for the best first book on the American Civil War and was a selection of the History Book Club. Her research and teaching interests include slavery and abolition, the Civil War, the U.S. South, and political and constitutional history. She received her bachelor's from Stanford University, a master's from the University of Virginia, as well as her PhD from the University of Virginia. And I am really thrilled to have Professor Sheldon on with me today. Professor Sheldon, thank you so much for joining me today on The Trial Brief. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. The piece you wrote in the Washington Post, Americans Worry About 2020 Being Another 2000, But the Real Worry Is Another 1876. It really was a great piece. And one of the things that I learned a long time ago from my history professor in college was that the term, this is unprecedented, to historians really isn't even really a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, only, it's only unprecedented if you don't know history, I guess. So let's talk about this. The election of 1876 was eerily similar to today, right? That's right. So there are lots of similarities. But one thing that I think is, is really similar in this case is the fact that people were worried before the 1876 election. There was tons of concern about whether or not there was going to be a constitutional crisis. In 1876, this subject found itself in front of Congress for three years before congressmen were debating what to do about the problem of a potential constitutional crisis in 1876. And some of that is similarly because an an earlier election had created some of these problems in 1872. The Democratic candidate, he was actually a liberal Republican. That was the name of his party, but he was supported by the Democrats. Horace Greeley had died immediately after the election took place, but before the electoral votes were counted. And and so there was a lot of concern about whether that was going to have a similar effect going forward or whether or not the split between a Democratic House and a Republican Senate was going to create problems. 
So th- there was a lot of concern in Congress. The 1876 election, the concern was much more about something called the 22nd Joint Rule, which Congress had put in place in, in 1865 and said that essentially one member of each house could challenge the votes of the Electoral College from a particular state. And what would happen if they challenged this is that each house would go back into their own closed session and determine whether they agreed with the challenge. And if they voted for the challenge, then that would mean that those votes would not be counted at all. Uh, And so there was a lot of fear, especially among Republicans in the 1876 election or in the lead up, that Democrats would try to block any candidate from winning the election, which would have thrown the election into the House, which the Democrats controlled. So there was a lot of worry about what would happen, and and particularly from the perspective of politics and uh, partisanship, in much the same way we're worried about it today. And when you talk about partisanship, you know, it's important to note that at the time, there was extreme partisanship and polarization. You know, the Civil War wasn't a distant memory, right? I mean, it was it was fresh in everybody's minds. That's exactly right. And one thing I always like to say is that we we sort of think of partisanship as a as a bad thing, as a as a really scary part of our democracy. But in fact, uh, partisanship has been around since almost the very beginning of the Republic of American democracy, and it was really serious, not just in the Civil War, but in the post war period. And in fact, partisanship was actually something that was a positive in many ways uh, in the period before the Civil War because it prevented Civil War. When you think about the coming of the Civil War and the election of 1860, what you'd notice if you look at the electoral map is that the the South, at, at least the Confederate states, the future Confederate states, are almost entirely Democratic. They vote for Democrats. And it's because the, the party system had really died out in those states. Uh, and so it had become this place where there was uh, a fidelity just to the Democratic Party, whereas in the North and in the border states, there was a lot more partisan conflict. And so I'm, I know that it is standard that people are upset <laughs> about partisanship, uh, but I think that's actually not the not the root of the problem. Uh, the root of the problem is the way that we understand partisanship, the way that we think about partisanship is as a negative that can create these problems and, and the solution might be to be nonpartisan. But in fact, you know, partisanship is what helps drive democratic participation. Uh, this We're supposed to be experiencing one of the highest turnouts in recent history in this 2020 election. And that was true in the 19th century, too. We had enormous voter turnout and including in 1876, which had the highest voter turnout in American history. That increased turnout is interesting. And I, I want to talk to you about it because there were reasons for it. Again, that strikes me as a similarity today uh, for this election in 2020, because we anticipate and we've already seen an increased voter turnout. And I think and and the feeling from a lot of people is that the voter turnout is going to be higher than it has been in recent history. And the reason for the higher turnout in 1876 wasn't so much because of the candidates, right? You know, Samuel Tilden, um, not Mr. You know, excitement, and Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, I, I think the same thing. So it wasn't because of enthusiasm for candidates, was it? 
Well, you know, I think there's a degree to which there was an enthusiasm for the particular policies of the Republican and Democratic Party. But one of the really big reasons why the Democratic Party had this resurgence is this is the first election in which a majority of the people living in the former Confederate states could vote in the election. It wasn't the first time that all of them did, but all of the restrictions that had existed previously for a majority of um, former Confederates as a result of the Reconstruction um, policies of, of the Republican Party, they are returning to the vote in 1876. And, and of course, they hate the Republicans. <laughs> they, they have no interest in, in the Republicans winning. And so uh, this, is a, this is a real serious turnout in the South for, for white former Confederates who are, who are going to be supporting the, the Democratic Party. And then you also have an enormous number of black Republicans who want to come out and vote. Now, their, their voter suppression was very serious in the 1876 election. And, and Democrats in the former Confederate states did everything that they could to prevent black Republicans from voting. Uh, they were terrorized. Ulysses S. Grant, who was president, sent troops to various polling places to make sure that uh, black Republicans could vote. But of course, <laughs> they they often didn't make it to the polls because of the terror that um, the Democratic Party and it really was the party. It wasn't it wasn't even just vigilante groups. It was vigilante groups essentially supported by or equivalent to the Democratic Party in many of these places. So it's an it's an odd circumstance in that there is massive voter turnout, but there's also massive voter suppression. And that is a really good comparison to today when there is all of this enthusiasm about voting. And yet there is so much voter suppression happening in terms of making it difficult for people to get their ballots in on time, making it difficult for people to figure out how to get their ballots in. Uh, making it difficult to get to the polls, closing polling stations, very similar uh, in that sense, although the parties are reversed here, right? So the Democrats today are pushing for greater voter access and the Republicans in the 1870s were pushing for greater access to the polls. Right. When we set the stage, which I want to do now for the election, you know, we're looking at a country in the depths of a depression, and we, yeah. have, we have a Republican in the White House, Ulysses S. Grant. We have mm-hmm. a Democratic House and a Republican Senate, e- even though that matches up today that, you know, the parties, we could switch those around, I, I guess. But I think the point is we have a divided Congress. That's right. And again, in the, in the midst of a depression, with that setting in mind and, and with the stage being set that way, tell us about the election. Yeah, so the election of 1876, as you mentioned, features Samuel Tilden of New York as the Democrat and Rutherford B. Hayes as the Republican. Hayes was from Ohio. So you have two Northern candidates. They are going toe-to-toe in this election that is, again, this sort of massive voter turnout, both from former Confederates and from uh, Black Americans who had recently received the vote under the 15th Amendment. And what happens in the election is that on election night, there is no certainty about who won. Um, Tilden has clearly won 184 electoral votes out of the necessary 185 to win. And the rest of the results are uh, in conflict. And some of that is because it took a while to count many of these votes, much like today, actually. Florida, in particular, had a lot of difficulty counting their votes. So the results were not necessarily known right away. But after a couple of weeks, it becomes clear that votes are contested in three states, 
uh, in Louisiana, in Florida, and South Carolina. And the difficulties there, again, mirror what we have today. So uh, when we think about Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan, where you have divided government, where you have uh, Democrats who are the governors in those states and legislatures that are Republican, very similar situation, particularly in Florida, uh, where you have this divided government or in terms of the newly elected government. So where you might have had a Republican in the Republican legislature in South Carolina before, uh, now there were concerns that it was going to be a Democratic legislature and similarly with the governor. And so what happens in each of those three states is that they produce two different sets of electoral returns, one certified by Republicans in the state and one certified by Democrats in the state, and they send them to Congress. And this is where the, the difficulty really comes because there's no real determination of who can count the ballots, right? The, the 12th Amendment says that the ballots, ballots must be counted by Congress, but who? Who is responsible for that? And so there's a lot of discussion and determination about how Congress ought to approach this problem. Each House puts together a commission um, to sort of think about it, a, a committee to determine how, how they ought to count the ballots. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth, and ultimately they decide that they are going to put together a federal electoral commission. Uh, which not everybody believed was constitutional at the time. There was a lot of question about whether this actually made sense. Uh, but they decide that they're going to do it. And they're going to have five members of the House, five members of the Senate, and five members of the Supreme Court. And so the determination there is that the House will send five men, three of whom will be Democrats and two Republicans, because they're a Democratic House. And the Senate, which is run by the Republicans, will send three Republicans and two Democrats. Then they pick four justices of the Supreme Court. Uh, they do a little uh, finagling to make this look like it's on the up and up by assigning people based on their circuit. But the basic idea is to get two Democrats and two Republicans. And then those four Supreme Court justices would get together and pick the fifth person. So all of this is very much in the sense of we know the partisanship exists. We know that there is a partisan court. And so we need to figure out how to find a person who is going to be that sort of deciding vote, because, of course, the Republicans are going to vote uh, in any case uh, involving these returns for the Republican uh, candidate, Hayes, and the Democrats will do the same for Tilden. So this situation is very tense. There are a lot of questions about what's going to happen next. The four uh, Supreme Court justices are thinking that they're going to select David Davis, uh, Supreme Court Justice from Illinois. Uh, Davis is a longtime Lincoln ally. Lincoln put him on the court. Uh, and so he had been a Republican, but he had also flirted with the Democrats, and he had especially flirted with the liberal Republican Party in 1872. So what people thought he was was an independent, and not independent the way we think today about independence, sort of as someone who's nonpartisan and, and is choosing from election to election. An independent meaning he was not part of either of the major political parties that we think of today, someone who was interested in other parties. Important to understand, in the 19th century, parties were shifting all the time. There was not necessarily an assumption that there was going to be a Republican Party and a Democratic Party forever, the way we assume today. Uh, and so Don um, Davis is not, is not necessarily going to be a, a, a clear Republican ally or a clear Democratic ally. In the meantime, while all of this negotiation is happening, David Davis is chosen by the Illinois Senate to be the next senator, 
from Illinois as a Democrat. This sounds totally insane to us today as well, because, of course, how would you how would you have a Supreme Court justice be elected to the Senate? But this was not a totally crazy thing in the 19th century. Uh, there were quite a few Supreme Court justices who re- retired or resigned uh, in order to take on other political positions. And so Davis is elected, is chosen by the Senate, uh, by the legislature to become a senator. And so he uh, declines the position on um, the, the Federal Electoral Commission. And also, Davis said privately that he thought that it was unconstitutional. So Davis can't be selected. And ultimately, the, the remaining folks on the court pick Joseph Bradley, who is a strong Republican, uh, you know, principled guy, but he's a Republican and everyone knows he's a Republican. And so how does it work? Uh, they have a series of votes about the uh, electoral votes and each one of them goes eight to seven in favor of the Republicans, and Hayes is going to win the election as a result. Uh, Tilden is going to be very upset. He privately believed he'd won the election, but he's not going to challenge the results. He's ultimately going to remain quiet, and there is a peaceful transfer of power. I, I think what is interesting is that today we, we think about, oh, no, we're not going to know the results in the morning. Back in 1876, the inauguration was still in March. It wasn't in January. So this election is in November, I think the 7th, but it's in November. And this battle takes place right up until the inauguration and in in March. And they're meeting. And again, I'm I'm going back to, I got to rack my brain. (laughs) They meet at the Warmly Hotel or something like that to strike the deal. And the deal is again I, I would love for you to clarify this uh, you know the common common knowledge is that the deal is struck that Hayes would become president in return for the Democrats getting federal troops being pulled out of southern capitals or, or southern cities is that so I'm is that so accurate? glad you brought this up it's not which is you know it's a, it's a, it's something that we all have assumed for many years it's such a funny example of the way that a historian can make a statement at a certain point in time that folks do not spend a lot of time investigating or that the historian is so prominent that maybe we don't question it and it goes into american lore forever so C. Van Woodward, who is a famous historian um wrote a number of really important books about the at the end of the 19th century particularly the south and he made this claim that um, there was this sort of backroom deal to, to end Reconstruction formally. And it, it's not true. There is not evidence for it. Uh, and Woodward actually later admitted <laughs> that he had that he did not have the goods to back it up. But it is stuck around in our sort of collective memory as an example of how there could be a backroom deal. And it's plausible to us because there were tons of backroom deals in the 19th century. This kind of thing did happen. There were there were ways in which the sort of elite government produced backroom conversations and backroom ideas that end up becoming either law or um, changing the results of American politics. But this is actually not an example of that. There was an interest by this point of uh, taking troops uh, out of the South and moving them to other places. And in fact, the U.S. Army had already been withdrawing many of its troops in this period and, and moving them further west to fight in wars with Native Americans. But there were many troops that stayed in the South far beyond 1876. There's a wonderful book by Greg Downs, Gregory Downs, called After Appomattox, that, ex- that explains some of 
the troop movements in the period following the election of 1876. They stick around for a while. So uh, it's, it's war. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a piece wow. of historical lore, which is really interesting. You know, I, I think uh, we assume that these kinds of things are um, are happening because they seem plausible, but they're not, but they're not real. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. That's I'm glad you you were able to clear that up. Um, I've seen that in so many books as well. Um, yeah, in summaries of of the election, uh, it's in almost every textbook. It's it's wild that it has stuck around for so long, and and it tells you that like you know we we almost want to believe that, and it also I think tells us something about how we feel about Reconstruction more generally. You know, Reconstruction is probably the least studied period in American history. For people outside the academy, every year I ask my Civil War era students whether they know anything about Reconstruction, and only a handful really do, because it's not it's not well understood in American society. And often we think about Reconstruction as a as a collective in our collective memory as a really bad moment in American history, when it's actually quite the opposite. <laughs> and so we we love to focus on the election of eighteen seventy six as this moment in which. Uh, finally things get back to normal. But that's actually not true either. So, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with unpacking what what is Reconstruction, why does Reconstruction matter, and why are we as a, as a nation so obsessed with the end of Reconstruction? In the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton was saying, you know, Reconstruction was a really bad time in American history. So it tells you something about how, how much that sticks in our collective memory. Right. Well, let's fast forward. The 2020, we've heard the president indicate or give us doubts that the election results will be accepted by him. There is anxiety about this peaceful transition of power. And when, when I look at Tilden, well, first of all, is it fair to say that Tilden was under a lot of pressure from November approaching January to not give in to this compromise? Yeah, that's right. Tilden had a number of allies really push him to keep challenging in the court the results of the election. And there were a number of Democrats in the uh, southern states who were pushing for violence, who wanted violence. And one of the reasons that Tilden refuses to engage with these, these movements and these arguments is that he's terrified of another civil war. He does not want to put the country through another sectional crisis. And Americans in the post-Civil War period were constantly worried about this. They were concerned that uh, the country was not stable enough to stay united uh, all the way up really into the 1890s, which is why you see all this rhetoric among Republicans uh, from the Civil War on. They called it waving the bloody shirt which also happens in the 1876 election, reminding people of the Civil War over and over and over again. There was a real worry about whether democracy was, would survive. Today, uh, we often take democracy for granted. We, we think that it is assumed that the United States will survive. And then not everyone necessarily believes that uh, democracy is, is the right thing for the country, as one of your previous guests talked about in terms of uh, authoritarianism and the interest in authoritarianism that has grown in recent years. And so it's a, a different moment in the sense that in 1876 and 1877, when Tilden is going through this process, he really wants to make sure that democracy survives. And so he makes this important determination not to fight further and also not to condone violence. 
in effect, some folks have, have drawn the comparison from 1876 to 2000 to say, oh, you know, Al Gore made the same kind of decision. I would say it's a different circumstance there. Tilden really was worried about serious violence. And in the 2000 election, of course, there was a lot of desire to get things swept away really quickly. Whereas, as you mentioned, it took quite a long time to figure out the results of the election in 1876, all the way up through February is when the, the Federal Electoral Commission was meeting up to the inauguration in March. So it's not quite a great comparison between 2000 and 1876, but 1876 was this moment where people were terrified about another civil war. Yeah. When I think about that election and, and Tilden and I think about today, you know, I think about how different history, our history would have been if Tilden had a different personality, if Tilden had a self-interested personality. You know, as we see today, you know, with, with Trump today, it's a very different personality than Tilden. I wonder what the outcome would have been and, and what, what would have happened in, in the crisis, the constitutional crisis that would have existed if Tilden was uh, a, a, from a different makeup. It's hard to know. I, I think, you know, there was a real possibility of increased violence that could have led to more serious um, uh, conflict. But it is, it's really hard to know what would happen, just like it's a little bit hard to know what will or would happen in this election if Biden wins and, and Trump determines he doesn't want to accept the consequences. I, I think we often assume that our institutions will protect us. And I think we've seen in the last four years that that's not really the case. Uh, and so we do have to keep our our eyes open to what the possibilities might be, just as they had in, in the 1870s. There are two small, interesting issues going back to that election and that always interested me. And I, I'd love to get your take on it to see, again, if, if it's accurate, what common knowledge was. But when you look back at 1876, the candidates, they weren't stumping for themselves, right? They, they, they had others do it for them. They did do some campaigning, but it wasn't anything like today. Um, in general, the, those kinds of events were run by parties and pushed for by parties. It had become more popular to campaign for oneself by the time of the 1876 election, whereas, say, you know, back in the 1830s or 40s, that would have been looked down upon. Lincoln did almost no sort of personal campaigning for in the 1860 election. But by 1876, you do get some, you get some traveling around and making speeches, although it's not quite as overt uh, as a campaign strategy. And really, this is a lot about campaigning on the state and local level. Part of that is because so much of politics happened on the state and local level. People were concerned about political viability of the issues that mattered to them. So in the 1876 election, the, the biggest issues in front of the electorate had to do with um, the, the future of paper money and, uh, you know, people in the, in the uh, Western states at that point uh, were really concerned about whether or not they were going to be able to have access to enough paper money. People in the East really wanted to return to um, BC to, to uh, tying paper money to gold and silver. Uh, and so the, the local questions really uh, related to that in part because, as you alluded to, that they were in the midst of a terrible depression that started in 1873. Today, I think we are much more nationally focused. 
some of that is about how much we know about our own representatives and local government that might be changing. Some of it has changed in the 2016 election. But at that time, people were very engaged on the local level. Politics was really important to people in ways that we just don't see today. You know, midterm elections, which is a sort of a misnomer in the 19th century because a lot of, uh, especially before the Civil War, a lot of elections took place all the time. There were elections every year and almost every month. You know, if you're going, if you look at the states collectively, in the Civil War itself, there was an election almost every month depending upon which state you were in. It, it was not centralized around a November date, and it was not centralized around, um, you know, every two years or every four years. So I, I think that the real difference has to do with those local concerns. Right. You know, I was looking back at some of the issues in, in the election, and it looked like what was odd to me, I know Tilden had talked about the the depression, and, and he had a, a somewhat limited plan to to get out of it. But it looks like, you know, Hayes thought there was like an open attack on Catholics, that they yeah. were they were considered a threat to the public schools and and Hayes thought this was some sort of winner, you know, issue for him. I mean it was. This is this is also very hard, I think, for us to understand sometimes. The nineteenth century was full of anti Catholic politicking. And this was true before the Civil War as well. The Republican Party in 1860 was able to get as much support as it did because not only was it concerned about the issue of slavery, but it promoted the question of whether Catholics should have the ability to serve in various places. And they combined with this party called the Know Nothing Party, which was full of people who hated Catholics and hated immigrants and wanted to prevent them from voting. And so the Republicans court them. They court the Know Nothings. And as a result, you end up with this coalition of folks who, uh, you know, <laughs> they hate, they have twin, twin irritants in slaveholders and Catholics. And this was true all the way through the Civil War and up through the 19th century. There was a lot of worry about Catholic power, and it was a winning issue for the Republicans for a long time to promote the issue of anti-Catholicism. So, yeah, I mean, it was a really big part of Hayes' campaign and, and had been successful for them as a result. Yeah. One last thing, I really, I didn't really have this down to ask you, but I, I really want to know your take about Colorado's role. Is it overblown in the election of 1876? No, I, I think it, it's totally wild to imagine that, um, that Congress is going to accept Colorado as a state a year before the election. They have three electoral votes. It's really important in terms of what's going to happen in the election because Colorado had not been admitted as a state. Then Tilden would have won because 184 electoral votes would have been enough. So it, it is a huge, it's a huge point of interest in the election. And it may have been the deciding factor in, in a in a sort of indirect way in that it prevented Tilden from winning with just 184 electoral votes. You can't help but think Hayes would have ran away with this election except for that massive voter suppression and voter fraud. I mean, is that fair? Yes, that is fair. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is really similar to today is that there is this belief among uh, certain folks in the in the other party, so in the Republican Party today and in the Democratic Party uh, in the 19th century, that Black Americans don't really 
care about voting or that they didn't really want to, or they think it's too hard. But in the period following the 15th, the ratification of the 15th Amendment, Black Americans wanted to vote so badly, they risked their lives repeatedly to do it. And they lost their lives doing it in the 1876 election. The desire to participate in politics before even the 15th Amendment was enormous. And so massive voter suppression played a huge role in the 1876 election. And there's no doubt that if Black Americans had been able able to vote in the numbers that were representative of who they were in the South, it would have been a different story. Right. You know, the statement you made in, in your piece in the Washington Post last week, where you said, given President Trump's persistent refusal to offer similar assurances with respect to a peaceful transfer of power, this year's outcome has the potential to produce an even greater crisis than 1876. That's right. And, and this has a lot to do with whether the president will accept the election results or not. And if he loses, uh, I think we could be looking at something closer to 1860 uh, than 1876. If he loses, there's no doubt he's going to try to challenge uh, everything he can in the courts. And I think we should be very concerned. Today, we, we have become obsessed with this idea that the Supreme Court is and should be nonpartisan, uh, when it is very clearly not the case. People in the 19th century understood that the court was partisan. They expected it. They believed it. They knew. Today, we have this assumption that they're not. And this is part of what produced the result in the 2000 election. In the 2020 election, if we have contested votes, we have to be very concerned that there's going to be partisan uh, determination of what happens to those votes and an assumption that, in fact, it's not partisan. But Trump has been very clear about what he thinks Amy Coney Barrett will do when she becomes a Supreme Court justice today, that she will be the vote that carries the election for him. And if it is not a landslide in in Joe Biden's favor, I think we have to be very concerned that it's going to produce this kind of outcome. And while in 2000, people were more willing to accept the Supreme Court's determination, I think there's a lot less faith in a Supreme Court that has so many justices on it that come from Republican presidents who were not elected with majorities. Uh, And in fact, that there are going to be three Supreme Court justices who served on Bush's team in 2000 uh, to to get us to uh, Bush v. Gore. So, you know, I I wonder how Democrats will react to that. And so I think we have to be very concerned that the antidote to all of this is a a landslide. But um, even then, you don't know where the violence will take us. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. I'd love to have you back on after the election maybe talk about what transpires after the election, but also maybe to talk (laughs) about the Supreme Court and partisanship too. I I think- um, I'd be delighted. Yeah, that would be great. Well, I I can't thank you enough for for coming on. It's been- Oh, my pleasure. It's been fun to chat. Yeah, it's been great. (laughs) What are you working on now? Do you have any other projects? Yeah, I'm I'm writing a book about the politics of the Supreme Court in the 19th century. That is actually my my main interest right now. So I wrote another piece in the Washington Post that came out um, at the end of September about partisanship in the Supreme Court in the 19th century and the ways that people in the 19th century thought about the Supreme Court as a partisan animal, as a as almost like being a governor or being a like a 
claims collector. <laughs> it was it was a political position in many ways, and and that was possible in large part because the court didn't have even close to as much power as it has today, and and so that's part of the transition. We're really obsessed today with a nonpartisan Supreme Court that nobody would have envisioned in, say, 1845. Totally wild to imagine for those books. I can't wait to have you on to to talk about that. That would be great. So so be well, and thank you so much again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm going to leave you with some thoughts from Professor Sheldon's piece, which I think really sum up the state of affairs that we're in right now. Given President Trump's persistent refusal to offer similar assurances that Samuel Tilden did that he would step aside for the peaceful transfer of power, that this year's outcome has the potential to produce an even greater crisis than 1876. Professor Sheldon goes on to say that if the election is either close or contested, the Supreme Court will include a majority of justices from the party that has sought to restrict voter access especially among black Americans. 19th century Americans were no strangers to the kind of divisive partisanship featured in this election. But unlike Americans in 1876, we do not have the recent memory of 750,000 Civil War dead serving as a warning for what happens when one side refuses to accept the outcome of a presidential election. Without the basic commitment of the president to maintaining the democratic process and with the Republican Party increasingly promoting minority rule, the 2020 election could produce a constitutional crisis even more like 1860 than 1876. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.